When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the final edition of the Ducks Confidential Podcast for the 2022 calendar year and uh, for the last one for uh, for a while, as we'll be taking a bit of a hiatus into 2023. So we will uh, go over quite a few things here in this uh, final edition of the podcast uh, for the calendar year, leading into the Holiday Bowl, going over signing day, and really kind of taking a broad picture view of the 2022 football season for the Ducks as a whole. Of course, I am James Kreppi, the Oregon Ducks beat reporter for the Oregonian and Oregon Live. Appreciate everybody who's already subscribed to the podcast and uh, whatnot. And uh, again, a happy and healthy holiday season to everybody. Before we get started here, we'll start with the uh, recency of the moment uh, and the things that are most pressing uh, in real time here is uh, signing day uh, taking place and the drama that was and now... uh, a little bit more of the dust settling as Peyton Bowen, the five-star safety who uh, made quite a bit of waves by flipping from Notre Dame to Oregon on Wednesday on National Signing Day, uh, then reverses course and goes uh, another direction. And while signing the documents, did not send them to Oregon uh, and ultimately signs with Oklahoma. So a there's usually one per class uh, by way of there's usually one top prospect per class who has a uh, dramatic kind of change of heart or something behind the scenes that gets a little bit uh, clunky. And you wish the young man obviously the best. These are all ultimately at the end of the day, they're everywhere. Uh, all the players who are signing, whether we're talking about for football signing day or the, all the other sports, these are young people who are offering themselves tremendous uh, opportunities to further their athletic career and athletic uh, and academic opportunities it's their lives. <laughs> like I realize fans and uh, everything get obviously really, really attached and the importance of players and obviously a premier talent like Peyton Bowen. Uh, people can get emotional and wound up about uh, what it means to uh, to their favorite team about these things. But ultimately, let's keep it a degree of perspective here. It was great news for Oregon that they had him flipped. Unfortunate for the Ducks that he changes course again. But grand scheme of things, does not uh, in any way, shape, or form uh, derail the day that was on Wednesday for Dan Lanning uh, and his coaching staff and the program as a whole. Uh, And they are still alive for several other top recruits who have yet to sign. Uh, I believe I haven't gotten the full uh, uh, numbers. I haven't seen the full statistics just yet in terms of out of how many, um, uh, not just players in general, but 
of the top 250, top 300, how many have signed. I heard north of 90, maybe even north of 95% of the top uh, uh, 200 or 250. So there will not be a lot of unsigned players uh, after the next couple of days. But be that as it may, the few that are not yet signed, whether they're committed somewhere or not, including five-star defensive lineman David Hicks, who's committed to Texas A&M, but who Oregon is in the running for, uh, and a four-star uh, defensive player, Nash and Porter, who Oregon is uh, uh, very much in the mix for as well. Whether these are players that get added in the next few days or they're players who wait until the February signing period or what have you, the class very much took dramatic shape on Wednesday. And it had been a, let's call it what it was, not a great couple of days heading into signing day for Oregon when even when it was expected for Dante Moore to flip, it was, you know, a major pillar of the class. A five-star quarterback would have been the highest-ranked quarterback signee in program history, one of the highest players in general in program history. Uh, and yes, Kenny Dillingham leaving to take the head coaching job at Arizona State had a factor there. And undoubtedly, uh, UCLA's move to the Big Ten and the opportunity for more to play both in his you know home state of Michigan as well as in the general region uh, as opposed to uh, family having to travel to the West Coast for every game uh, throughout his uh, college career. Those are things that are factors. But ultimately, grand scheme of things, Oregon was able to, as I wrote on uh, OregonLive.com, which I'm sure you can check out, and I'm sure it was in the Oregonian as well, what Lanning and his staff were able to do on Wednesday was not just flip some players, and it was four and now it's it's three, uh, with Bowen um, changing his heart and going to Oklahoma, but it was more than that, and landing two other commitments as well. But it, it was more than that. It was more than simply saying, well, you know, you got a couple of really, really good players uh, and the class just goes up a couple of pegs. No. If not for landing several players, and to be clear, in full context, many of these recruits who Oregon uh, landed, whether they were flips or were just outright uh, landed commitments from, from guys who hadn't committed yet, they were in the running for several of these guys for some time. Uh, you know, all right, uh, a, uh, a Johnny Cornelius from Rhode Island comes into the portal, you know, in the last month. That's a shorter term thing. But like Dalen Austin, they were in the mix for him for quite some time. So in and of itself, some of these weren't necessarily huge surprises in that they weren't, they weren't completely out of left field or something that came on uh, in the final couple of weeks. No, these are things that did take, you know, take some time and were, were murmurings to be out there for some time. But nevertheless, to land as many players as Oregon did that as of last weekend or as of Monday even were not committed to the Ducks, uh, even if it was considered to be a possibility or even a probability, to get everybody who they were shooting for, and yes, initially Bowen, but okay, he changes his mind, that flips more than just a couple of players to a class. That changes the thought process, the narrative, the perception of a program and a coaching staff. Because every headline, nationally speaking, about signing day on Wednesday into Thursday 
if it wasn't about Alabama's historically ridiculous class, which it is, uh, you know, pinch yourself if you've uh, not heard that one before. If it weren't for talking about Alabama and having the number one class and, you know, everybody's a blue chip player except for the kicker, everything was about Oregon winning the day and the drama of the flips and ending up with a top 10 class and still being in the running for all these other players who I mentioned before. That's huge. So yeah, losing Bowen hurts in that sense, but in the grand scheme of things, to lose a five-star in Dante Moore, to enter the day, enter the, really the past several weeks, thinking that Caleb Presley would flip, and he did, to Washington, it would have been very easy, very easy, for Oregon to exit National Signing Day with, all right, a fringe top 15, maybe top you know, 16, 17, somewhere in there, signing class. But because Moore flipped to UCLA, because Presley flipped to Washington, because USC would have finished ahead of them, if not for the efforts and the job that Lanning and the staff did, all of which you know came to fruition on Wednesday, the discussion about Oregon would have been, hey, this recruiting, this recruit first staff that Lanning assembled, uh, you know, on the field ended in a nine and three season with two blown fourth quarter leads against rivals in the final month that knocked them out of the Pac-12 championship race and probably the college football playoff in the process, and now in this recruiting first realm, they're not finishing first there. They just lost their centerpiece to UCLA and Chip Kelly, and they lost a guy who they were trying to get out of the state of Washington to their rival, and now they're losing to them off the field when the prior staff weren't losing to Washington off the field in the recruiting trail. What's going on? And instead, nobody's talking about any of that at all. Nor should they. Because in recruiting, there's going to be lots of wins and lots of losses. That's just part of it. When, you, when you're going to try and recruit and contend with the very best and try and acquire the volume of elite talent that it's going to take to try to break through and be a college football playoff team, whether in the final year of the four-team model or in the you know years to come of the expanded 12-team model, particularly if you're going to try and do it as a large team, in the 12-team model and not get the uh, the Pac-12 auto bid in the process, whether we're Pac-12, Pac-10, whatever the heck the conference is by then. If you're going to acquire the talent necessary to be one of those teams, and to not just be one of the teams, to contend, to compete, to play in playoff games and win multiple playoff games against the teams who are, to the shock of nobody, at the very top of the <laughs> of the recruiting rankings. Crazy how the top of the recruiting rankings usually correlates pretty strongly to on-field success. If you go back a couple of years and say, who were the top 10 recruiting teams a couple of years ago? Can't necessarily say one year because that's that might be a little bit quick, but who were the top couple of classes in a couple of years ago? And what does that look like now that here we are in the playoff? And what does that look like? Well, sure enough, if you go back to 
2019, for example, Alabama and Georgia were one and two. Shocker, I know. And a whole bunch of SEC teams were in there. Oregon was in the top ten. Michigan was eight. Ohio State was the one of the teams that were in the playoff this season who was way down, way down at 14 back in 2019. And in 2020, again, Alabama and Georgia, Georgia first that year. And Clemson and LSU and all right, Ohio State in the top five and Michigan in the top ten. Awfully surprising to exactly no one who follows this that Michigan has all of a sudden become a playoff team in back-to-back seasons when they've started recruiting better. Under Mario Cristobal, Oregon started recruiting like an SEC team, like a team that was going to become an elite program back to that stage that it had been before, but doing so with the talent necessary to contend with those teams and not get blown off the field when the time arrived. And you can take a look at, like I say, look at no further than Michigan. Forget about just, oh, Alabama, Georgia, Ohio State, Oklahoma, all the names you hear for years and years now. Fine, look at Michigan. A major national brand team, etc. Harbaugh, who could not find success against Ohio State for a number of years, they started recruiting better. And all of a sudden, they're in the playoff back-to-back years and beating Ohio State back-to-back years. If you're going to contend and play, if you're going to sit at the big table and contend with the very best and try to win playoff games against those teams, you're going to be having some great successes on the recruiting trail and great wins and beating out those teams for some of the very best players. And you're also going to have, at times, some rough losses. You're going to pour in a whole lot of time and effort into players who don't end up picking you or who flip on you or whatever. You're going to have instances where in a bye week, Dan Lanning goes all the way to the East Coast to talk to a premier offensive lineman and recruit him and then Oregon's not among the final couple of teams in the running there. And Adrian Clem's going to go and try to get Caden Proctor, and they're going to feel pretty good for a minute. And then Alabama's going to, you know, he's going to visit Bama at the end. And Proctor flips from Iowa, but he picks Alabama. But if you're going to compete with Alabama and Georgia and LSU and Notre Dame and Oklahoma and USC and Miami now with Cristobal and his staff down there and all the names that we invariably know in the new playoff era. This staff, which, again, the perception a year ago was up, recruiting first, and etc., had to show in a full recruiting cycle exactly what it could do. And at this point, there's only one outstanding uh, commitment in a junior college transfer, George Silva. But otherwise, this staff assembled a top 10 recruiting class that could still improve. That's awfully good. That's a heck of a start. They inherited a talented group. I think they're probably going to come out more talented on paper than the roster that they inherited a year ago. There is a lot of roster churn, which sets us up to 
discuss uh, things heading into uh, into the Holiday Bowl. There has been a lot of roster churn. There has, which again is also part of it. You know, forget about what other fan bases say when when players go in the portal. I don't care what team you're a fan of. I, I it doesn't matter. Whether we're talking about the Ducks, the Beavers, the Huskies, I. It, this is it's not relevant. There are almost no teams left at this point. I believe there was only two or three after the first like day and a half of the portal window being open, and at this point, I, I think there might only be one or, or none that haven't had a player enter the transfer portal this month. So all of college football is dealing with this. Well, to the volume, this many guys. Again, if you, if you don't follow it every day, if you're not really paying attention to not just your team, but seeing how the dynamic is playing out across the country in terms of how many guys are going in and what does off-season roster attrition and roster management look like, then you're going to overreact and think, oh, well, eight or ten guys went in the portal in, in two days. Something's wrong. No, something's not wrong. Not when not under a new construct with with there being a transfer window and a set time that the window opens. That's what, a couple of off-seasons ago, Oregon had 10 or 12 guys in the portal. It just played out over the course of two, three months. Here, it took two or three days because they changed the rules. And they were hardly the only team who was in that scenario. And by the way, several teams who... Look, Alabama lost a, a truckload of players. Anybody suggesting that uh, the sky is falling in Tuscaloosa these days? Oh, they just turned around and landed the number one recruiting class with all, again, all but one player was either a four or five star and the one who wasn't was a kicker. I mean, come on. But nevertheless, there has been a good amount of off-season roster churn and attrition. They are still Oregon is still at this point at this point on paper as we sit here Thursday afternoon projected to have 91 scholarship players for next season, which is of course six over the limit. So there has been roster churn. There will be roster churn. There will be more roster churn. And to note with that 91 projection, that is counting every quote unquote well every player with an additional year of eligibility choosing to return, who has not stated otherwise. And earlier today, Noah Sewell declaring for the draft. He had multiple years, if he wished. Same thing with Christian Gonzalez. I'm talking about guys like, for example, Brian Addison, Steve Stevens, Jamal Hill, uh, Casey Rogers, Brandon Dorless, Taki Taimani, Mace Funa, Stephen Jones, Caleb Chapman, Isaiah Crocker, Cam McCormick. The players who have yet, not yet indicated what their plans are going to be for 2023 if every single one of them return. And for some of the draft-eligible players, including Dorless, for example, who may or may not choose to go that route and haven't declared what their intentions might be. So that's how it shapes up at the moment on paper. So there will be more roster management and attrition there will probably be some more auditions. That's going to be part of the process for every team, every offseason. 
that that's just going to be the way it goes now. Now, you know, how should it be? And, and well, I'll leave for others and columnists. You can read plenty of pieces. I know uh, Pat Forty, among many others, has suggested, and Dan Walken and, and others have suggested that early signing day no longer has to exist, uh, and that you could just do the February signing day as it used to be. Because now that the portal window is when it is, and the playoff is going to be expanded, and all this stuff is is colliding in December, to also have the early signing period in the middle of December is foolish. To have all these things happening at once, to have coaching changes and hirings and firings, uh, an expanded playoff means that playoff games would have been starting already, and the portal window, to have all those things happening already, and then, oh yeah, by the way, the early signing period. Why, why have all those things happen at once? That at the time of doing the early signing period when it was instituted was fine, well, and good, but that was before the one-time transfer, before the portal window, before um, any number of the, the expanded playoff. A lot of circumstances have changed. And perhaps there is some wisdom in just going back to the one period in February and letting there be letting December be about transfers and that aspect of roster management. And then once that dust settles, then the high school recruits can come along in February. And for those who are going to be mid-year enrollees, well then they can enroll and already do that. Which by the way existed before when there was only one signing period. So it's not like, oh well, if you go back to that, all the mid-year enrollees are messed up. No, they're not. They did that before. <laughs> that 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 existed long long ago. So I don't think it would mess with anything uh, in a negative fashion if they chose to go that route. But I'll leave that for others to to weigh in on, and and you can form your own perceptions and all that uh, going forward. In terms of for the Holiday Bowl, by my count, uh, again as of earlier Thursday, Oregon uh, on paper sets up to have approximately. It's kind of a moving target. I I freely admit but approximately 62 healthy and available scholarship players. And that that's two prongs of that. There are a couple of player, scholarship players who are still on the team, but they're, they're injured and they're not going to be able to play in the game. Guys have been hurt all year with, with season-long injuries. Uh, then there's guys who've either opted out or what have you, or, or the guys who obviously went in the transfer portal. When you account for all the injury, departure, opt-out, the draft declaration, whatever the case is, you get down to 62. Uh, Now, with the NCAA granting the waiver of the four-game redshirt rule, that does allow three of the freshmen who would have been in a bind and would have lost a year of eligibility had they played in the game to still play, that provides some flexibility to the system. Uh, But that also includes multiple specialists who are on scholarship. So when you get into just purely offensive and defensive players, you're looking at a pretty lean roster. Uh, That's going to be part of this for bowl games and things going forward as well. That's going to be a challenge going forward. What does one do? Uh, How will the system handle that? Again, I'll leave that for others in the future to, to weigh in on. But be that as it may, that will be a an issue. For the game itself, uh, given that both teams did not have a terribly good 
defensive statistics during the season and that both quarterbacks had really good years. Now, North Carolina is not going to have uh, – Drake May will not have his top target to throw to in Josh Downs, who is uh, declared for the draft and opted out of the game. So there will not be an 1,100-yard receiver for Oregon to defend, but at the same time, even if they – whether they did or they didn't, Christian Gonzalez wasn't going to be lining up opposite him. That would have been an incredibly entertaining matchup if it had come to pass, but it it did not. So UNC will be without its top target. Oregon's defense will be without its top corner. For that matter, North Carolina had several defensive backs, uh, including Grimes, Storm Duck, which for those who haven't caught that that's a name that was out there. Yes, very much. Uh, yes. Uh, Cam Kelly, they had several players go uh, in the portal as well. So both defenses are hurting from a personnel standpoint in a bind against two really productive offenses, whether they have all their weapons available or not. I would expect this to be a higher scoring game. Oregon is favored by multiple scores in this game. Well, you know. I'm not going to begin to project it. <laughs> I realize this is the, this is the serving as a brief preview of the game, but uh, w- with so many moving parts and and the uncertainty around bowl games this year, uh, I am most definitely not going to uh, pick uh, when we're roughly a week away from the game. I'd like to at least get down to San Diego and know that everybody make the trip uh, for both teams and who else may be absent or academic eligibility or not, or opt-outs or not, or whatever else uh, may come down the pipeline because there's, like I say, it's, it's just too many moving parts for, for some of these bowl games. Be that as it may, I think it'll be a lot of offense. Uh, it should be all things considered when you're not in a New Year's Six game, when you're not in a bowl game that's one cut below that, which for the Pac-12's purposes would have been the Alamo Bowl again. When you are in a third-tier game, to have a game with two of the better quarterbacks in the country, really. Probably two of the top... Probably two of the top ten quarterbacks in the country this season. To have that kind of a matchup, you know, a bowl matchup could have been a lot worse. Let's put it that way. You know, yeah, you could have had the Vegas Bowl against an SEC team in Florida, but and, and credit to Oregon State for winning that game and, and really walloping Florida. But point is, you could have had a matchup with a team who had 28, whatever it was, 25, 28 guys <laughs> opt out of the game and not play uh, or transfer or what have you. So even with opt-outs, even with transfers, even with attrition, even with injury, all these things, even a different offensive coordinator for North Carolina, uh, you're still going to have a bowl game that, one, is actually a pretty compelling matchup in general, but two, is a matchup that, at worst, you know two of the better quarterbacks in the country are playing in the game. And if nothing else, if you really just want to be sold on something and look ahead to next season, all right, well then go take a look at some of the freshmen who are going to be playing in this one uh, because... At some positions, Oregon's going to have no choice but to play <laughs> some some really inexperienced players at a couple of spots, particularly at edge rush, uh, that being one of them. And 
some of the backup inside linebackers. Uh, after Jeff Bossa and Keith Brown, uh, it's it's going to start to be the freshmen. So you're going to see in the front seven, several freshmen probably get extensive looks and opportunities. So something to look into uh, in this Holiday Bowl on the 28th. We'll wrap up with a bit of a broad picture look at the season that was for Oregon. And uh, I'm not going to go ad nauseum through every which game and whatnot. That's that's not really the, the point. We've obviously discussed uh, throughout the season uh, each and every game. But reg- because regardless of what happens in the Holiday Bowl, it really doesn't change, uh, obviously, how the season went or, or overarching perceptions. Big picture. A year ago, landing the staff show up. Bonex commits. Hey, there's a quarterback competition. Is it going to be a real competition? Are they just handing Nick's the job? Is it going to be a real competition? Why are they even bringing in a transfer when they've got Ty Thompson? Etc. 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 Fast forward. Nick's has a career season. Kenny Dillingham, who had not had complete autonomy of an offense to date in his career, so proved himself as an offensive coordinator that he got a head coaching job in the league at his dream job. Nick's was a dark horse Heisman candidate entering the month of November. And then, you know, if not for the injury, if not for the loss to Washington, it's become a little bit of a team award. But be that as it may, was obviously having a tremendous year. Had a tremendous year. Running back room, they lost uh, Travis Dye and C.J. Verdell from last season, one to the NFL, one to USC. Well, who's going to emerge? Who's going to lead? Bring in multiple transfers. Lo and behold, Bucky Irving and Noah Winnington have really good years. Jordan James comes in as a freshman, cars out a roll. Offensive line was going to be a strength, was a strength. Allowed the fewest sacks in college football, even while having a couple injuries up front. And the receiving core, lots of talent, much of it unproven. Troy Franklin will end up with nearly 1,000 yards. Whether he tops it in the bowl game or not, is, is it's a statistical milestone. But other than that, it doesn't change that he's had a tremendous season. And they add Chase Coda, and he has a really, really nice final season for him and a career year for him. And the tight end room has multiple players in McCormick and, and Herbert who were hurt come back and have roles and Terrence Ferguson turn into a really productive tight end. Offensively, not a whole lot to knock and criticize in terms of uh, you know player personnel and, and player results. We can get into strategy and those things. We'll get, we'll get to that. I'm going through. Defensively, inherited a defense that had its lowest sack total in the, you know, since 2000, since the NCAA was tracking sacks. Lost Kayvon Thibodeau. Lost Verone McKinley. So you need, you knew that interceptions and sacks were going to be hard to come by and you needed to replace them. Lo and behold, the major flaw of this defense was a lack of consistent pass rush. Should not be treated as a massive surprise, but just could not get it. 
individually, collectively, any which thing. That combined with some inconsistency in the secondary outside of Christian Gonzalez made for some brutal pass statistics. Brutal. Defense had a horrific start in the season opener against Georgia. Improved numbers against much weaker weaker competition. The following four, five, six, however many games. But bottom line, the areas that you knew were going to be concerning and deficient and where there were question marks entering the season were concerning and deficient and you never got answers. Unfortunately, if you're a Ducks fan. Entering the offseason, you're already starting to see a lot of uh, changes to the roster at some of those positions. So clearly it is being addressed. But that does not completely tell some of the individual performances defensively, like a Gonzalez, who very well could end up being a first-round pick and had a great year. Or a Brian Addison, who went from a situational pass def- you know, pass down only, third down, pass down only safety to a every down player by the second half of the season and came up with some of the biggest plays in the secondary in the second half of the season. And again, and this is a secondary that had the issues that it had. It kind of defies the numbers, but if not for Gonzalez, Addison, and Bennett Williams, the you can only imagine how, you know, what the numbers would have looked like without them. So individually, there were still some really good performances. And I know Brandon Doris's numbers weren't necessarily where he wanted him to be or where fans were hoping for him to be. There were a lot of games where Dorless was having huge performances. All right, yeah, he was affecting the quarterback. He wasn't getting the sacks. I understand. But as a whole, he still had a really strong season. Maybe not the season that you all would have hoped for or that he would have hoped for from certain statistical standpoints, but he still played really well. We'll see what he chooses to do in terms of coming back or not, or and same with Addison for that matter, uh, for next season. Coaching-wise, again, you could point to question marks about, hey, Lanning, first-year head coach, never been a head coach before. Dillingham, first time, full autonomy as an offensive play caller and coordinator and game planner, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, whole staff coming together for the first time. Many of them hadn't worked together before. What's that all going to look like? Again, offensively, not much you could possibly criticize or critique or nitpick. Defensively, plenty. Whether it be pro, you know, the volume of zone defense, uh, particularly in certain spots, uh, certain strategy and where they align certain guys, uh, was failure to develop a pass rush uh, purely a, a player personnel issue or, or was, you know, was everybody put in the best position to succeed at all times? Plenty of areas you can you can point to there. Uh, again, when you get a little bit of a larger sample by way of uh, personnel, you probably get a little bit more of a fairer perspective of an evaluation there. But nevertheless, there were certain things, certainly defensively, that 
you know, the numbers spoke for themselves. Stri- strategy and aggression and forming an identity. I think you got that. You got that early. That was shown really by the end of September that this was going to be an aggressive offense. It was. It was going to be an explosive offense. It was. Uh, there were going to be big plays. There was talk all offseason that were going to be big plays. There were. They were going to go forward on fourth down, and they did. Not at an extreme rate by any stretch, but they did. When it worked, especially at home, boy, you'd be hard-pressed to find anybody who complained. When they went for the onside kick against UCLA and it worked, everybody having a, a grand old time. The timeout management, the clock management, uh, on when they went up tempo, when they went crazy slow and had that you know those signature long seven and eight minute drives in games, those were the things that showed that this, albeit young, coaching staff was more than up to the challenge. When some of those same decisions didn't go their way. By way of outcome, not by way of process, not by way of statistics and probability, just by way of outcome, then everybody wanted to second guess. Why were you going for it here? What happened here? What about this? What about... Can't have it all ways. And I realize some of the instances late in the season and obviously how costly some of the decisions proved to be. Could you nitpick and uh, not just nitpick, could you outright criticize Landing should have called timeout uh, before the fourth down play to get Knicks back on the field against Washington. Yes. Absolutely. He even he admitted it after the fact. A lot of things could have been done differently, that being one. Could have called timeout if not to put Bo back in the game than to change the play. Also true. How about also in retrospect, with full context and clarity, that even in the moment, if Knicks were not as hurt as he became throughout the course of that week, and running on adrenaline, that clearly he was going to be hampered on whatever was coming up because, lo and behold, the whole next week, he barely practiced ahead of the Utah game. So the idea that, well, call timeout, Bo goes in, you run the same play, Washington has to defend it differently, they still pick up the first down, who knows, you know, the game could, you, you could just ice it from there. Yeah, it sounds nice, but... What if everything doesn't go according to plan just because Bo's back in the game because he, he is dealing with a, a foot injury at that point and he actually starts to feel it? Who knows? Want to criticize some of the fourth down calls, uh, whether it be that one or others. Want to criticize in the Oregon State game some of the strategy and going forward, particularly again on the fourth down. Again, similar play. Knicks is on the field and up oh, keeps it when he shouldn't have. And he admits it. But why are you going for it there anyway? You should have punted, really. And that brings us to, yeah, where special teams, which were an issue before, were problematic before. Certain areas really got very good results. Something that probably will be and shouldn't be lost in an entire assessment of this season is that Camden Lewis had a really good year. Really good year. And Andrew Boyle kicking off once he got it going consistently and having that role 
had a pretty strong season. And not that anybody, you know, worries about long snapping every day, but all told, not everything on special teams from the specialists was bad. But at punter, got to call it what it was, statistically speaking, Oregon was the worst punting team in the country. And it cost them a football game to a rival, which probably then cost them the opportunity to play for a conference championship, which may or may not have led to their ability to play for at least in the Rose Bowl, even with a loss, or in the playoff at the punting position. Now they've addressed it by landing a signee in this year's recruiting class, but they brought in multiple transfers to compete for the punting job. Nobody could nail it down, and it come back, comes back to haunt them at the end. Brutal. Brutal. But I don't think that should become, oh, well, because of that failing, then your decisions strategically to become aggressive on fourth downs in some critical spots after (laughs) in the very game having problems at punter. uh, Now we have to say, oh, well, all the strategy on fourth down is terrible too. I, I, I don't ascribe to that personally. Because that was the ultimate that you can't win for losing. There was no, there was, there was not going to be in, in numerous instances there, whether it be the Oregon State game or the Washington game. There were a couple of instances where, no matter what landing did, unless everything, unless the outcome played out to his benefit and his and what he wanted, you know, to have happen, uh, which statistically was probably the most likely outcome, but nevertheless, unless it did, then everybody's going to pounce one way or the other. You punted, why'd you punt? You didn't punt, you failed, why'd you go for it? Oh, you go for it and you got it? Uh, well, I'll only remember to criticize if, if Oregon loses. If Oregon wins, it'll be a decision that gets lost in the box score. You can't assess coaching strategy based purely on outcome. You can't. It's, it's not fair. It's not. Yet, for some reason, <laughs> in the month of November, <laughs> and what will be an off-season thing... Uh, some of the national pundits really took landing the task about fourth down strategy. And I understand because of outcome, but at the same time, these folks aren't sitting there racking their brain and aware of the fact that Oregon's punting situation was as inconsistent, to put it mildly, as it had been. They're making these off-the-cuff statements and assessments with incomplete information and shaping perception uh, of a situation that, as I say, I think based on what we all, those who are following it every day or, or covering it every day in my capacity, know to be a little bit different to have a few more data points that might indicate and further explain some things. Yeah, not telling you have to like it. If you don't, if you don't, hey, you can still philosophically just say, to hell with it. I, I still want to, you know, do certain things and I still believe they should have punted in these spots or, or not or whatever. Okay, that's, that's fine. All I try to do is explain and give a degree of context one way or the other. But I'm not here to tell you that the punting situation was good or special teams as a whole was good. There's plenty of coverage and, and return issues. 
uh, or that the defense was good because it wasn't. There's plenty of th- there's plenty of things I can point to and criticize and, and point out that Oregon underperformed. That's why I say nine and three under the circumstances was a disappointing season, regardless whether they get win number 10 or loss number four in the Holiday Bowl against a, a North Carolina team that, like I say, is without so many players, is irrelevant. It's a disappointing year. Because you can't just say, well, first year coach, new coaching staff, new this, new that. Everything's graded on that curve. This staff inherited compared to other jobs in the country last offseason, the most talented roster of any new coaching staff in the country. And they added to it. They did. And they enhanced it. They did. So for the things that they get credit for, you can also say that that comes with higher expectations. They were favored in every game, other than the Georgia game, until 90 minutes before kickoff in Corvallis when the line shifted significantly. And then depending on exactly when you got the line against the Utah game, it it varied all over the place because of Nix's injury. But they were favored to win. They were supposed to win. They were the more talented team on the field in every game other than the opener. And if not for blown leads in fourth quarters, they would have been playing for a conference championship which would have been for a spot in the playoff. So yes, 9-3 and three and not even having the opportunity to play for a conference championship is disappointing. But a 10-win season would not in any way be a bad thing by any stretch of the imagination. A 9-4 and four season isn't a bad thing. It is just a disappointment relative to where they could have been. They are enhancing the roster. Signing day has, well, the signing day is past. There are still some players to get sorted out in this early period and obviously an offseason to look ahead to the February signing period and the portal and everything else. And obviously you can follow all those developments as always uh, in the Oregonian and on OregonLive.com. Appreciate everybody again for listening to this edition of the podcast, as well as the podcast all season long. Thank you very much. Again, a happy and a healthy holiday season and new year to all of you. And uh, we wish you the best. And we will see you soon, uh, whether it be here or on our uh, podcast, other podcasts with uh, Bill Oram, our fine columnist. Uh, probably be dropping in there at different times, but we'll be taking a bit of a hiatus as we enter the new year and as football season wraps up and get into basketball and all those things. So again, we thank you and uh, have a safe and a happy and a healthy, and we'll see you soon.